namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami This next talk, uh, called The Sense of the Sacred, was given a year after the last one. So the previous talk was uh, the uh, 9th of August, 2002, and this one was given on the uh, 5th of August, 2003, again at the Leicester Summer School. Sense the Sacred is actually the title of this one. I went to India this year for six months, and as soon as I arrived in Bombay, I felt the sense of being at home. Monks, sadhus, holy men and so on are so much part of the culture in countries like India and Thailand that you feel unquestionably accepted there. Even though most people in India don't know much about Buddhism, they know you are some kind of sadhu, somebody who tries to live the holy life. India, in any case, is a country that is very accepting of life. You fit in there, no matter how weird, diseased, strange or eccentric you are. The mere fact that you are there means you belong. I find it a very pleasant country to be in because of that. And Benares, which is a holy city for the Hindus, is for me one of the most interesting places in the world. I spent two months there this year, right on the ghats, uh, right near the main ghat, in fact, just watching life going on. You see marriages, corpses burning, devotional observances, pujas by the river, people bathing. The Hindus love to bathe in the river Ganges, so they go there in their thousands. The cows and water buffaloes also bathe in the Ganges, and the sewage goes in. Human and animal corpses are thrown into it. People wash their clothes in it. It just takes everything. For me, the idea of bathing in the Ganges was not particularly attractive, so I waited until I got to the northern part of India before I did that. But Benares is a city in which everything is sacred. Everything. No matter how good or bad, clean or dirty, right or wrong. The sense of the sacred is palpable in that place. The whole city is just like a puja to the great river, the river Ganges. I, I also spent a, a year in India. Um, uh, the <coughs> from the summer of 2004 to the summer of 2005 uh, on pilgrimage um, and also spent quite a bit of time in uh, Varanasi, Benares and um, uh, very, uh, in the same kind of area uh, in a place you could look out of the window down onto the main ghat, the Dasashvamid ghat and uh, see the pujas going on and um, one of the things that, uh, about India is just as uh, Lumpur says here, there's a, a, um, a definite sense of belonging, that everything is, everything is acceptable there. And uh, even though life is a lot less of quote-unquote efficient uh, than you might find in the West, uh, when I went there, I'd been living in the United States um, for about uh, seven or eight years, eight or nine years, and uh, uh, particularly in, in American cities, then uh, life is very, very controlled. So when I first went to, to go and, um, and stay in San Francisco, one of the things that, that was really striking to me, um, particularly in the sort of Anglo parts of town, it's not so much in the, in the Hispanic parts of town, but in the Anglo parts of town, you, you'd never see any old people or children on the street. You just see you know, everyone who you see is sort of between 18 and, uh, and 60, or trying to look... 60 or below, <laughs> or trying to look at least 18. And, uh, and <clears throat> there was this kind of strange, um, sterilized quality. I didn't really uh, appreciate what it was at first, or why, why it seemed so strange, but that was one of the, the characteristics. And, and then being around San Francisco, I thought, oh, where, are the, where are the school kids, or where are people sort of pushing their babies in the strollers, or where are the old people on the walking sticks or in wheelchairs, and just not seeing that around. A lot of people are in cars, not uh, not so many as, say, in Los Angeles, which is completely 
motorized, but San Francisco is very hilly. There's about 40 hills in in San Francisco, so it's a, a bit more uh, windy streets and a bit more bit more hilly, and so you have more people on foot and around on the streets. But still, it was this very much this uh, only if you are a competent a uh, mobile adult who's got something to be doing, are you out and about? Otherwise, you just sort of, seemingly, you're, you're hidden away. Or if you're a school kid, you're going, to, going from the school bus into the school and straight out again. And old people are never, never around and about. Uh, when you would go to the, the more, um, uh, say, the, the Hispanic part of town or the Chinese part of town, then you would see a lot more uh, of, the, uh, of the sort of the whole range of human life. And then also in the African-American parts of town or across the, the other side of the bay in, in Oakland, then you'd see far more from the, you know, the, fresh, the, <coughs> the, the freshly minted, the newly born, all the way up to the, the aged. You find whole families out together. But in the, in the sort of the, the main um, busy Anglo parts of town, it seemed to be this sort of sterilized um, and sort of monoculture. And uh, so India is far more like the... <laughs> The kind of Hispanic and the Chinese and the, the African American parts of, of town, where you have everything on the street, from the, uh, the the newly born to the the very aged, and everything in between. Also, the um, uh, the the uh, um, uh, say the the sick and the old and the dying, particularly in Varanasi, because uh, within the Hindu culture, to die in Varanasi and to be cremated beside the the river Ganges and have your ashes put in, into the river, that's sort of the, uh, that's like the, the the best you can uh, you can hope for in life, and so there's a, a big uh, gathering of, uh, of people so coming from all over India, often to come to, to Varanasi in that way. So uh, I found um, that uh, uh, <coughs> that quality of seeing the whole dimension of life it seemed to be far more sane than living in the West, where uh, so much of life was hidden away. Again, in in the in uh, in the, the in the West, particularly in the States, you wouldn't see sickness, you, and you certainly wouldn't see death. You, you know, that in Varanasi, it was not uncommon. To, literally, seeing you know, dead bodies or parts of bodies floating in the river, or um, there were the, these little sort of um, platforms, pavilions by the river where people could sit. And and uh, I noticed there was this you know, one guy was lying very relaxed on this little platform. And said, oh, he's been there all day. Oh. Oh, the next day, oh, he's still there. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> That's why he's not moving. <laughs> that would not happen in Hemel Hempstead. You know. Or certainly not in Berkhamsted. Yeah. Or in San Francisco. And so there's this kind of strange, sterilized quality that, that we have. Where um, the, What I found in, in India, this, when people would ask, well, what is it that you like about India? Because, oh, it's so noisy and so grubby and... You know, the air is so bad. I said, well, yeah, you get your kind of vitamins and your minerals by breathing. You know? it's, all, it's all there in the dust and the fumes. Um, but there's a kind of sanity, I found, that it's extremely sane because you have all of these different dimensions of life are, are right there in front of you. You're in it. You are it. Uh, and nothing is hidden away where in, uh, in the West, and, and particularly in these sort of very controlled environments that we, we tend to have, then there's a sense of people trying to be <coughs> sort of 23 years old and good-looking and healthy and cheerful all the time. The, that, you know, like in the, the, the sort of toothpaste adverts. You know. Hi. And the, that's, that's sort of how everyone is supposed to be. And if you're not you're 23 and cheerful and good-looking, then somehow you know, life is not quite right. And, uh, and so that, uh, that kind of... Um, Madness <laughs> is something that we live with a lot. That I'm, I'm generalizing somewhat, but I think most of us would appreciate not generalizing very much. But uh, what I found in India, that there's a, the kind of sanity of being with inefficiency and grubbiness and illness and birth, uh, uh, birth, aging and death. You're, you're right there. Nothing, nothing is hidden. So you have the whole spectrum of the, the, the living world is uh, you're in the midst of it. And there's a, I found there's a strange kind of sanity that comes with that. And that in the, the West, and particularly in very sterilized environments, uh, like in a big city or somewhere like, like Los Angeles or San Francisco, there's a kind of an, an, an agreed insanity. Well, let, let's all pretend that doesn't exist. <laughs> let's sort of take that out of the picture and we'll all just sort of be fitting into this model of how human life should be. 
the sort of Botox uh, and under control, and you've got a plan, and you've got insurance, and you've got uh, everything is sort of locked up and and, uh, and carefully controlled. And that, to, so I would say that that's a kind of group madness. It's sort of an agreed, a crazy standard that we 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 go along with and call it normal life. And so uh, there's this uh, strange way of being in India, even though it is very unpredictable and it can be extremely um, frustrating or confusing, uh, especially if you're trying to catch a train or or uh, <coughs> or um, to, um, uh, to stick to a schedule. It can be you know, very very frustrating. But uh, that quality of, of sanity or sense of, of uh, say, being in accord with the way life is, that uh, even with all that, you know, the, the grubbiness and the confusion and, the, and seeing, the, you know, being in the midst of painful uh, uh, difficulties of people and, and animals and the whole sort of, uh, say, um, pained quality of life, that, that, quali- that sense of, of sanity and... and um, the uh, the sense of this is the the way life is unfiltered. Uh, this is there's no pretense. It is this way. There's a there's a, a tremendous beauty in that. A sort of terrible beauty, if you can use that. That um, I think it was a W. B. Yeats's expression. It was a terrible beauty there, and uh, that sense of of um, of uh, belonging and being part of of of, uh, of a living system. And so that uh, I know many people when they travel in, in India that they oh, can't stand it, and it's, and it's really challenging and difficult. But I, I uh, for myself, I really enjoyed it greatly. And so I was there for a year, uh, traveling around, going to the various different Buddhist holy places and, and other parts of the country, and um, it would, uh, was uh, thoroughly delightful. And uh, it was uh, I really. Um, um, so it was a most uh, kind of beautiful and, and fertile time in terms of insight. So, to continue. Many of our common values in the West are based on very self-centered goals and materialistic values. But in a place like Benares, you feel this devotion towards deities like Shiva and Kali and Ganesha. Whatever the deity, you feel the power of devotion the sense of recognizing something beyond the material world and the individual needs. In the American system, on the other hand, individuality is the priority. We're brought up to proclaim ourselves as individuals in such an extreme way that often we don't feel any connection to anything at all, not even our own parents or families. Myself, I don't have any strong identity with race or ancestry or anything like that. My family didn't have a close relationship. The sense of myself as an individual was very strong. My rights, what I think. Because of that, I was able to leave it all behind. I didn't go back for 13 years. Or did I really want to? So, individualism does have its advantages. It gives you the freedom to do what you want. But just endlessly trying to satisfy your own needs and thinking only of yourself can only lead to extreme loneliness. When you're young, it can be rather exciting doing what you want. But as you get older, it creates a sense of disconnection with the world, and depression and loneliness. Self-aversion and self-criticism can then take the mind over because the sense of yourself, your self-worth, depends on things that you cannot sustain or maintain. You might achieve them sometimes, but you can't keep them. In India, then, the sense of the sacred is stronger than the individual. And yet the individual... The leper, the eccentric, the low caste, the high caste, the king, the military, the communist, whatever, whoever, is also accepted. There is this sense that it all belongs. And this is a reference point I find very helpful. And uh, it's that sense of everything belonging. Um, When I was in uh, Kerala, uh, which is, um, uh, Kerala is a state in the uh, southwest corner of India, and it was the first, I think, the, the first uh, state of any country that elected a communist government. So they're very staunch so- socialists, and um, and you see hammers and sickles all over the place. Any of you who've been to Kerala will will, will know that. But also, there's a way that they they happily include religion into their communism. And so uh, they uh, one of the the, the de- devotional things that you'll have in in uh, Hindu temples and Hindu shrines. Is a, is a puja tree. So it'll be like a tree that's covered in uh, different um, 
uh, symbols or images of a particular deity. And I was in, when I was in Kerala, in Calicut, outside this temple, I saw this puja tree with uh, lots of hammers and sickles hanging on it. You know, it's like... <laughs> so somehow, you know, the Communist Party was included as part of the, the pujas in the temple. It's like, yeah, no problem. It's, so they, they have a marvelous way of being able to uh, I- include everything like that. Also, uh, one of the things uh, uh, that Lumpur says about uh, individualism in America, I lived there in the States for 15, 20 years. Uh, um, between 1990, I started going to visit in 1990 went for a few months each year and then was living there from uh, June of 96 to uh, July 2010. And uh, it's really striking, uh, you know, the, obviously coming from, from Britain, you know, European mentality, there's a certain amount of, uh, of individualism and the stress on sort of personal effort, personal success and so on. But in the US, it's taken to a whole extra level where um, the uh, individualism is, in, in a sense, praised to the highest. And me winning is the most important thing. I think there's a few Americans here. That <laughs> recognize this. Me winning is the absolute good. And even to come second is, is, a, is a, a disaster. Um, and so uh, when I was living with American monks in the early days, and they would talk about this, how <coughs> you know, like, uh, going uh, through the, say, sports training in, in Britain, it, what you get, uh, uh, say, uh, hammered into you is that you're a member of a team, you're part of a team, and it's how the team works together is what is what really important. And if you're selfish or you're kind of, um, you're trying to outdo everybody else or to... And, you, and you're not looking out for the others in the team. Even when it's a, like an individual athletics event, you know, you're still expected to be looking out for the rest of the team and helping the other team members along, particularly in in, um, in team sports. But in, in America, the uh, the say the the kind of training that they would get would be like, you know, win, win, win. You know, second is not good enough. You know, you have to win. And that uh, the uh, the conditioning is uh, uh, is heavily about. The uh, the excellence of the individual is the most important thing. That's the, the ultimate value. Again, it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but um, I think what uh, Lumpur is is saying here, I would echo that. That's a very very powerful force in society. So what that means is that Americans suffer a lot because not everybody can come first. <laughs> and if you you haven't made it to the top, then you are feeling like you're a failure. So second is not good enough. It's uh, uh, and so that. There's an awful lot of people who don't come first, who are not at the top. So <laughs> there's this uh, a tremendous lack of, of self-respect or, or self-worth. I remember um, years ago seeing a, uh, I think it was at the Winter Olympics, and the uh, American uh, skater had got the silver medal. And, uh, and so she was the second best skater in the world. And she was, her face was like this, this complete anguish, the tears pouring down her face, because she was second. She only had the silver medal. It was this absolute disaster. Her life was ruined. She was you know, 16 years old, and her life was over, because she didn't get the gold. And, the, um, and uh, so you think, well, you can understand that. You could relate to it in a certain way. But that sense of, yeah, you're, you're, the, you're the second best skater in the world. That's pretty good, <laughs> but no, it's not. It's not good enough because the conditioning is around. No, that only the only the top really matters. The rest is is not good enough. The rest doesn't have value, and so uh, living in the states and um, uh, so te- uh, teaching there that sense of individualism and then the loneliness and isolation, the the, the lack of self worth that comes with that is a very very prominent piece of um, uh, say. Uh, the conditioning for people. So again, you, you uh, as Lumpur says, there are advantages that people are ready to sort of reshape their lives and go off and do something different. And if this doesn't work, you just go do something else. They're not constrained so much by the expectations or the the people around them. But uh, there's a tremendous sense of, of uh, like a feeling of wanting to belong, or a sense of isolation and you know, insecurity and, and loneliness. So that was often uh, in teaching, giving talks or teaching retreats would be one of the main focuses of attention about, about those feelings of, of uh, worthlessness or lack of belonging and wanting to be part of something.
The discriminative mind always tries to control things. You see this in the political, political scenes where the Americans are determined to wipe out, quote, the axis of evil, unquote. It doesn't belong. We've got to destroy it. Get rid of it. Of course, the, quote, axis of evil, unquote, is not in America or in any president. It's somewhere out there in some general direction. Though it's very vague. But anyway, it definitely points outside itself. In that logical sense, if good is right and bad is wrong, we must get rid of the bad and hold on to the good. That makes sense, doesn't it? Buddha, of course, very clearly pointed to the way it is, the Dhamma, rather than to ideals of how things should be. Even though one felt that this is the way it is in Benares, however, there were many things one thought needed to be done, many things one thought needed cleaning up or making efficient. This American mind can rattle on like that, and yet in the end, there was a sense of, this is the way it is. In its own way, things do get done in India. Somehow, the trains and buses and everything do function. And for a country with a billion people, where everything seems so completely chaotic and erratic, it does work, actually. Maybe it's us, then, that has to look at things in a different way. Any questions, thoughts? If I'm misrepresenting the USA or India, please speak up. I do have an American passport as well, so I'm, I'm partly American. My accent isn't 100% English anymore. Thoughts, questions, reflections? Okay. So maybe it's us then that have to look at things in a different way. Comparing that to my own experiences in meditation, much of my early years was spent in trying to control the mind, trying to get rid of the bad thoughts, trying to hold on to the good ones, trying to retain the more refined states of consciousness, get the high levels of concentration, control the environment, keep out the noise and generally limit everything so that irritating sensory impressions did not disturb me. It was a matter of trying to develop the ideal of samadhi, and always feeling frustrated by the fact that even if I managed to get concentrated, it was unsustainable because the effort was on controlling, ignoring or denying the conditions that destroy peaceful states of mind. People can get obsessed in some of these groups. Shush! Don't talk! Wanting to control everything, not wanting any disruption so that they can gain tranquility. Of course, you need the right environment for that because if you have distractions, noise harsh impingements, physical pain, or irritating things going on around you, you can't get it. It isn't possible if the conditions are not there. Sensory deprivation is ideal for this. One of those sensory deprivation tanks, maybe, where you float in a pool of body temperature water with your eyes closed and everything shut off so that you can't feel a thing. When nothing is attacking or irritating the body or senses, the mind will go into a tranquil state, simply because it isn't being irritated. The human mind likes that and wants it. And once you have such an experience, you want more of it. You create a desire for it, even while you're having tranquil or mystical experiences, even while you're experiencing a sense of oneness or loss of self-consciousness or whatever. We have the experience, then we remember it. Then we grasp that memory and try to recreate it from what we remember. But it doesn't work. So one of the um, uh, quotations I, I often uh, say, speaking about the, this way of, of relating to good and evil, and how if uh, we attach to the good and, and want to wipe out the evil, and again, uh, Lumpacha would often speak about this. Um, there's a, a statement by Alexander Solzhenitsyn where he says it, it would be so simple if um, if we could just isolate the evil and destroy it, and then only all that would be left would be the good. But unfortunately, the line between good and evil runs right down the middle of every human heart. <laughs> That's a very neatly way, uh, neat way of, of, of putting it. Also, this, um, uh, as Lumpo is saying, that sense of trying to control everything and have a, a, um, a quiet environment so that you can practice and to get concentrated and trying to, to shut out all, all perception. One of the effects of, of living in India is... Uh, uh, I found I developed an extremely high tolerance for ambient sound. Because along with having a lot of, uh, of um, grubbiness and, and dirt and dust everywhere and the air being 
filled with lots of uh, pollution and uh, you know, car fumes and, um, and dust and so forth. It's also incredibly noisy. Not, and not just in the cities, but in the countryside as well. Uh, like in Thailand, often in the villages, they like to have PA systems. And when it's wedding season, you have this kind of Indian, uh, uh, Indian uh, uh, pop music going you know, all night long, all day long. <laughs> and uh, just the, the, the sound of engines and fans or uh, air conditioning, if you're in a place with air conditioning. Just the, the general level of racket going on, dogs barking and people shouting and the, the whole thing. So I found that um, one of the effects of being in India for a year was an, uh, I developed a very, very high tolerance for, for noise. So that uh, uh, I find that if, uh, if I want to take, take a nap or, or, or to, it's a place where there's a lot of noise going on uh, to lie down and sleep at night, it's, it, it's not bothersome at all. It's very rare that any kind of noise will, will, will keep me awake. Or, or if I'm practicing meditation, I'll find that the, the, a lot of noise being around is not bothersome. Or not, uh, I'm not waiting for it to be over or, or not kind of arguing with it. So I feel very grateful for the noisy India. Uh, that, uh, was, that was a gift that uh, I developed from that. Uh, also, when, uh, <clears throat> when I was uh, going to be there for a year, I remembered... Uh, Sometime before that, when Ajahn Sajito was planning to go on pilgrimage uh, to walk uh, to the, through the, in, uh, the Buddhist holy places on a six-month walk with, with Nick Scott on the Tudong walk, um, uh, it, it, he went in, I think, in 1990. And in 1989, Master Shunhua and a large number of his Sangha members came and stayed here. And uh, we had a question-and-answer session with him one afternoon over in the retreat center shrine room. And Ajahn Sajito asked this question about samadhi, some kind of aspect of meditation. And Master Hua completely ignored his question. And even though it hadn't been said to him that, oh, this monk is going to, is going to go to India in a few months and go walking there, um, the, what Master Hua said was, when you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone or anything. So it, was, he, it wasn't a question about meditation. <laughs> But it was extremely useful advice for Ajahn Sajito going to India. And so uh, I remembered that and um, thought, okay, well, that really worked for Ajahn Sajito. So I'll take that with me as a sort of, okay, make this a, a not fault-finding adventure. And so uh, also uh, what I did was I thought, well, I'd like to have a, a focus for the practice while I'm there. And I knew I was going to be traveling a lot and going to be there for a whole year. So I thought, well, let's take a theme and let's make it really, really simple. So, and, and uh, I've been to visit India a couple of times before, going to Dharamsala to see the Dalai Lama for different events. And, uh, <clears throat> and also India is famous for being uncomfortable and difficult in, in various ways. So I thought, okay, well, let's just make it a meditation on feeling. I'll just take that as a, a Vedana, an investigation of, of Vedana, of, of feeling. Let's take it as an opportunity so that Right, whether I like it or I don't like it, what does it feel like in this moment? What is the feeling? And so um, an extremely simple, very straightforward, basic, uncomplicated focus for, for the practice. And uh, that was extraordinarily useful. It was, uh, uh, I, was, um, uh, I found that uh, something that was, was uh, very, very helpful because whatever the situation was, whether it was something that was comfortable or beautiful or delightful, then you say, oh, this is the feeling of being delighted and inspired or this is the feeling of being really hot and sticky, or this is the feeling of being really hungry, or this is the feeling of being on a train for 18 hours and, and not moving for six of them. <laughs> well, you're parked in some station while the train is, is stationary. That's what this feels like. This is the sitting in a train wondering when it's going to start moving again feeling. That's what this is. And so I, that, yeah, many of you will have heard me use that kind of expression uh, uh, over time. So that's really where I, it hatched was a year in India where I had a big variety of different feelings to investigate. But that was, uh, uh, again, a very, very helpful, uh, say, uh, focus for, for Dhamma practice, because um, if you're thinking, oh, I can only practice when it's quiet, when it's still, when I'm comfortable, I'm not too hot, I'm not too cold, uh, then it's going to be a long wait. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of time when you, quote-unquote, can't practice. But if you make the practice focused on the attitude rather than on the object. Uh, 
and that the, the attitude is one of openness and, and uh, receptivity, then irrespective of whether the object, uh, the, the field of experience is comfortable or uncomfortable, what you expect, what you don't expect, beautiful, ugly, um, inspiring or, or, or difficult, then there, the mind has uh, that quality of, of refuge. It has a, there's a, a peacefulness, even while there's a, a whole racket going on or there's a, a something that's very challenging or frustrating or difficult. The mind can be perfectly at peace with it. When I, I was staying in Varanasi, it was, um, <clears throat> I think it was uh, March or April, and the weather was 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 really hot. And I had this little little digital clock, and I was and it had a thermometer on it. It was to measure the temperature. Uh, and it was this, uh, and even though we were by the river Ganges, which and the river should have some kind of cooling effect, it felt like this was a really really hot day. So I thought. I wonder how hot this is. So I, I put my little clock into the direct sunlight at about one o'clock in the afternoon, just to, just to, te- to test the temperature. And it got up to 137 and then started spasming. So 137 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, and then it sort of started kind of, ooh, kind of going into shock. So <laughs> it ordered, I thought, you're not a happy clock, are you? It's this it's little... Uh, Heat sensor was was going into into sort of palpitations, fibrillations. So I kind of rescued it from the sunlight. But I thought, 137. That's that's pretty steamy. <laughs> it's about, I guess, about 50, 50 something Celsius. If you're always trying to achieve some mental state maybe something remembered in a previous meditation retreat, you will be endlessly frustrated. The first time these things happen, you don't know what's going on. Suddenly, your mind drops, but you have no inkling of what you've done. Maybe you have some vague idea, but you've never actually experienced it before, so you don't know. Once you do experience it, however, the danger is to to desire it again. Whatever is pleasant, you want more of it. If something is unpleasant, then what? People that only have pain and miserable states in meditation don't usually continue after a while because their memories are too painful. As soon as they think of meditation, they think, pain, misery, and they're not going to do it unless they're masochists. Buddha, in pointing to the way it is, wasn't pointing to an ideal of the way it should be, but to the ability to open to the way it actually is right now. Whether it's peace and tranquility or noise and confusion, He was pointing to the ability to open to that which includes everything in the moment. When we don't use this ability, we're always trying to exclude things. All our efforts in meditation goes towards controlling, trying to get rid of this or that, trying to get tranquility, trying to get samadhi. So we're busy with the ideas, habits and techniques we've acquired. The Buddha was pointing to the power of recognition, this awareness, Sati Sampajanya, I call call it intuitive awareness. It is an intuitive ability. Now the intuitive sense is natural to us. The ability to allow consciousness to manifest the things that are happening, seen or unseen, in the present moment, is natural. But this is not a function that has been highly praised or respected in the Western world. We like the dualistic functions of reason and logic, right and wrong. We love that kind of mental exercise. So, even though we all have intuition and use it, we often don't know anything about it. We mistrust the idea of it, actually, because it's not a rational thing. Intuition isn't something that we can explain. We don't have any really good words or symbols to make it very clear to anybody. The best we can say is, I have a feeling, a sense, maybe a sense of uneasiness. But intuition includes everything. It's not discriminative. It's not us making moral judgments or value judgments about anything, comparing one thing with another, saying what should or shouldn't be, what is right or wrong. It is the ability that we have to open to life as we experience it, even if what we're experiencing is painful or unpleasant. Nowadays in the West, our efforts are generally aimed at trying to control life, trying to make things perfect, and exploring the realms of science ad infinitum. 
No matter how far we go or how successful we are, however, we somehow never feel content with what we have. It's never quite satisfying in itself. There's always a desire for something more. One thing goes to another thing. So in this um, uh, particular um, say aspect of the, of the practice that Lumpur is talking about here, this is a, um, uh, say, very, very common theme of his. And uh, so Sati Sampajanya is often uh, translated as mindfulness and clear comprehension or mindful, mindfulness and full awareness. And so um, with, uh, with respect to that, uh, Sati means mindfulness, Sampajanya means uh, clear comprehension or full awareness, full knowing. And so that uh, Lumpur developed the use of this term intuitive awareness because he felt that, well, to call it clear comprehension, it gives the impression that you understand what's going on. You, you're, you have a sense of, uh, a, um, a sense of clarity about uh, what's happening and uh, how, uh, what you should do and uh, you've got answers for things. That's what the English word comprehension implies. And he, so he stopped using that and, and developed the, this, this term intuitive awareness because he, he uh, was reflecting, you know, you can be fully mindful of something that you don't understand at all. You can know that you don't know. And a lot, a lot of the time that's what's happening. That You can be aware you haven't got a clue what's going on. Just as you can be out in the dark and you can't see, uh, uh, say, you're, you're walking away from the monastery and you're, there's no lights around. Is that a tree? Or is that a person? Is that, is that, is that the, 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 the gate in the, in the hedge? Or is that, uh, is that just a gap between the trees? But you can't see. But you, you can know that you can't see because it's dark. So that, <coughs> that uh, he used intuitive awareness because the, the English word intuitive is a bit vague. But um, he felt that was more accurate in uh, uh, representing the, the quality of Sati Sampajanya than, say, clear comprehension, that you're, that you're not comprehending. You, you're often faced with mystery or, or with wonder or, or uh, confusion. So you can be fully, mindfully aware of being confused. You can know, I haven't got a clue what's going on. Or, you know, what, the, what the hell is happening here? Or, where, which way am I supposed to go? You can be fully aware without any kind of stress or difficulty that you don't know what's happening. You don't know which direction to go. You don't know what's the, the best thing to do. So you know that you don't know. So that, that um, uh, the refuge then in that respect is in that quality uh, of knowing, not in having an answer for something or being able to see. Like You're trying, like, trying to discern what's there in, in the dark. And the... Um, this is also reflected in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, uh, in the, the third section of that, which is called Jitanupasana, although probably many people are familiar with the, the Sutta. So the, that third section is, is quite a, a short section of, of the Satipatthana Sutta. Jitanupasana is then described as um, with particular pairs of qualities, and it's just uh, knowing mind states as they are, so that uh, roughly... Translated, it says, knowing the agitated mind is agitated and the unagitated mind is unagitated. And the concentrated mind is concentrated and the unconcentrated mind is, is unconcentrated. Then the mind, knowing the mind filled with anger is being filled with anger, the mind free of anger is being free of anger. The mind filled with lust is being filled with lust, the mind free of lust is being free, free of lust. The mind full of confusion being full of confusion, the mind free of confusion is being free of confusion. And, <clears throat> and then it says, you know, with this whole set of pairs of qualities there's no value judgment that says confusion is worse than lack of confusion or that anger anger is worse than freedom from anger in that context there's no this is good that's bad this is right that's wrong you want more of this and less of that it's completely level in the expression of it and it and then at the end of, of each section of these, each of those expressions it says knowing that to the extent there is this so that the mind in that establishment of of mindfulness, if there's a wave of anger there, then, oh, this is an angry feeling. That, and there, there is mindfulness established there. It doesn't mean that you, can, you say it's a good thing or that it's beautiful, just here is an angry feeling. Or their mind is now free of anger. Or here's a mind filled with regret. Here's a mind free of regret. Here's a mind that's very agitated. Here's a mind that's uh, free of agitation. So it's pointing to the development of that mindfulness as a refuge so that even though there might be agitation and noise internally or externally, uh, 
that the mind is taking refuge in that quality of knowing, knowing to the extent there is this, that, oh, well, this is really busy, <laughs> this, is, this, is really, this is really noisy, and recognizing in that moment the mind doesn't have to find fault with anger or fear or jealousy or lust or agitation, and doesn't have to, to grasp hold of, of concentration or calmness or wisdom or lack of greed, hatred and delusion and so on, but rather there is this. And so that's how the, the Buddha describes that. So a lot of, of Lumpur Sumedha's teachings revolves particularly around that third of the Satipatthanas, the third foundation of knowing mind states exactly as they are without getting caught into uh, I want more of this or less of that or being, being biased. And then having received those qualities, then again part of the, the quality of mindfulness and wisdom uh, and uh, intuitive intuitive awareness is that there the intuition of what is wholesome what is unwholesome is part of that so that the thinking mind doesn't have to say this is good that's bad there's an intuitive sense of oh if the mind follows that then it's going to be painful the mind follows that then it's going to be uh, it's going to be something that's that brings blessings so that it's not a matter of just sort of making yourself numb or or dull or or, or say just um not having any kind of, of um, sense of direction of what is beneficial, but it's uh, that sense of, of, uh, of direction of what's wholesome, what's noble and helpful, and what's harmful and destructive. You know, that's not coming from the thinking mind or, a, or, or obeying an order, but it's coming from the heart's own attunement to the, the way things are. Any thoughts, <coughs> thoughts reflections, questions? Yes. Because in the Satipatthana Sutra itself, it can seem like, well, they're, they, they're referring to very, very similar things. But if you look at the, uh, mind, the Sutta on Mindfulness of Breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta, which also, it uses the framework of the four foundations of mindfulness, but in relationship to the breath. So uh, what you have with the fourth foundation of mindfulness in that, it's, uh, it's uh, all to do with observing the quality of change. And so that it's, uh, and so in effect, it's not just, so Dhammanupasana, it's not just sort of Dhamma with a small d meaning mental object, but really it's Dhamma with a big d meaning seeing the, the flow, the, the nature of experience in terms of Dhamma. So you're seeing the changing nature of it. So that's very, very clear in the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, Anapanasati Sutta. It's not so clear in the Satipatthana Suttas, but, um, uh, so that the uh, in the chitanupasana, the the uh, say mindfulness of of mind states, is like say knowing okay this is anger, this is freedom from anger, this is concentration, this is agitation, this is calmness, this is ag- and busyness and whatnot. Uh, <clears throat> so then the the dhammaanupasana reflection would be looking particularly at that in the uh, uh, through the the eye of of uh, change. So that okay. This, this angry feeling, is it changing? This freedom from anger, is it changing? This agitation, is it changing? This calmness, is it changing? This, uh, this lustful feeling, is that changing? This freedom from lust, is that changing? So that it's, uh, <clears throat> to me, that, uh, um, the, the, that makes much more sense because if you just look at it in terms of the content of, say, mind states and mind objects, it's kind of, uh, they, 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 there's a big overlap. So rather, I see that the fourth one, the, the Dhammanupasana, is more seeing things in terms of Dhamma. So like, uh, and not just Anicca, but also in terms of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. So that looking at those mind states as the, the, uh, in terms of the three characteristics of, of all experience. So it's kind of letting go of the content of those mind states and uh, reflecting on the process. Which is the easiest way of describing it. So it's like with vipassana meditation. So really, the the first three satipatthanas about looking at, at the particular 
content of the of the objects, and then the 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 fourth one is sort of letting go of the of the the, the content of experience and looking at the process of experience itself. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, essentially, yeah, that, um, <clears throat> but all in that same that discourse to Bahia, it goes on to, um, like in the scene, there's only the scene, in the herd, there's only the herd, in the sense, there's only the sense, in the cognized, there's only the cognized. So it covers all of the, se- the sense bases. And, uh, and, like, uh, and then, but then he also, uh, that leads on to the investigation of the kind of, a subject and object, as you will not be able to find a self in the object or, a, or a, in, in the subject or anywhere between the two. You're not able to find yourself in the world of that or in the world of this or anywhere between the two. So that, again, it's sort of uh, looking at the, um, uh, the process of perceiving as a kind of letting go of the, the particular contents of the, um, of, of the perceived and then also stepping off from that to develop that inside into into not self. Okay, to continue. The Buddha, however, referred to awakenedness, to being awake and aware. When we trust in that, when we begin to trust our intuitive awareness, we get behind our conditioning, so to speak. I become aware of self-consciousness, cultural conditioning, and the emotional habits I have. I'm open even to the fact that I want to get something, maybe. The awareness gets behind any desire to attain or achieve, any disliking, criticizing, or anything I might be feeling in the present, and therefore goes beyond cultural conditioning. So it's like in India, the, the, the cultural conditioning of like, well, the train is supposed to be here at 8.30. It says it on the board, you know. Your train is arriving, 8.30. It's already 10.55. The train's not here. I'm going to talk to the station manager. That's cultural conditioning. At a Buddhist monastery like Amravati, many nationalities are represented. And in consequence, many different ways of thinking. We have people from Eastern Europe and Russia who have been brought up under the communist system. Because they look like Western Europeans, we tend to judge them according to our own experiences. But actually, their way of looking at things can be quite different to those of us who grew up in the capitalist democratic systems of the West, with its affluence, materialism, and emphasis on individual rights. We also have the Thai and Sri Lankan monks living in Amravati now, and they have another way of looking at things. But the Buddha's emphasis was on emptiness, which appeals to me very much, because the realization of emptiness... Reality of emptiness starts with zero, no thing at all, rather than from some thing. When you start from a metaphysical doctrine, you usually have something very inspiring, an ideal, an abstraction, something quite high. Then you look towards that ideal for inspiration. The emphasis the Buddha made, however, was on realizing cessation, as in the Third Noble Truth, where everything drops away. When you try to think about cessation, you go back to the dualistic structure of mind and think it means you drop dead and everything just vanishes into a void. That's the way logical conclusions work. I was brought up to think and reason, so there was a great desire in me to know everything about Buddhism and figure it all out. But then I learnt to trust intuition. If your security lies in figuring everything out, and getting answers to every question, solutions to every problem, When you stop doing that, you could feel rather frightened. It might seem as though there's nothing to hold on to anymore, as though you're vulnerable and raw in a rather frightening universe and you don't know where to turn. Instead of holding on to that state, however, just be patient and allow it to be what it is until you learn to relax into it, into this natural state of being, this emptiness where you can really be yourself for once. People say, I just want to be myself. To me, that's not trying to become something I think I would like me to be, but rather being fully at ease in this present moment as it is, 
even if the conditions are threatening or complicated. From here I begin to see through the idealism that is part of my cultural conditioning and the sense of individuality, my rights, myself, my judgments. I'm actually very critical of myself, and this is a constant source, constant source of suffering for me, because the critical mind is never content. It's always saying, no matter how good you are, you're not good enough. You can either persecute yourself with this, or you can go into the empty place. Go into it and learn to sustain it as you trust and recognize it. The third noble truth is just that recognition, the reality of no self, of no thingness, of cessation. Instead of, on the logical level, that being a totally unconscious void, it is like a, a plenum, full, rich. Fullness and emptiness mean the same thing, really, because words are very limited. Now, Lumpur Cha made uh, similar observations. Uh, he said, you know, we, we talk about the mind being empty, uh, Wang, Wang in, in Thai language, but he said also, uh, you can say the empty mind is really full because it's full of wisdom. So that, that uh, uh, say, the way of describing it is just a, a relative statement. And the word plenum, uh, like, uh, uh, is a Latin word, very rarely used in English, uh, but uh, it means it's something that is, is full or abundant or, or complete. And the, um, the, the Pali word puna, or in uh, Sanskrit purna, is the, um, is the equivalent. That means uh, something that is, is uh, whole or, or full or, um, or uh, abundant. So like Ajahn, puna dhamma means, fu- uh, means uh, full of dhamma or replete, uh, with, uh, uh, replete with the dhamma. Remember the great limitation of words and why you need paradoxes. On the level of real experience, nothing is just like this and not like that. Fullness and emptiness are at the same time empty and full. We hold to a view like no self and then criticize our egos. If we have selfish thoughts or emotions, we tend to make value judgments about ourselves as personalities. But if we are aware of this tendency to make judgments, we get behind these habits. It's like being the the background to the things that come and go, arise and cease in consciousness. We look at it in this way rather than getting carried away by the good and wanting to hold on to it, or the bad and wanting to get rid of it. Learning to trust this, I think, is the big challenge for Westerners. What I've seen is a tremendous lack of confidence in people's own direct experience. There are so many in the meditation world, in this country and in the States, who trust external authority more than their own direct experience. They mistrust themselves so much, in fact, that they believe whatever the gurus say, whatever is in the scriptures. They empower external beings and conventions and are always looking to them for some kind of affirmation or verification of their own experiences. They do this rather than trusting not in their own views and opinions, but in that intuitive wisdom which is natural to them. And this intuitive wisdom is not something that they don't already have. It's just that they don't trust it. Their personalities are conditioned in a way that makes them afraid of being enlightened or even of being right and instead makes them look for confirmation from somebody else, wanting the teacher, the guru, the swami, the authority to say, yes, you are now a stream enterer. The, the, uh, often Lumpur has talked about this when, when he, he was a young monk at, uh, at Wat Papong and trying to get Ajahn Chah to, to tell him whether he was a stream enterer or not. And sometimes he sort of just be having a chat and kind of work around the subject of trying to sort of bring it up in this way or that way or the other way. And, uh, and uh, of course, Lumpur, Lumpur Chah knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was a very, um, uh, a very astute judge of character. So he, he knew exactly uh, uh, where uh, the young Sumato Bhikkhu was coming from. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, then Lumpo uh, Sumedho would, uh, would ask him, and he said, that, <coughs> he said that, and so Lumpo Cha would say something like, well, if, you, if, you're, if you're asking me, then you're obviously still in doubt, aren't you? <laughs> and, be, uh, and doubt is one of the, uh, the, the, the first three fetters, which says that stream entry hasn't been uh, arrived at yet. So the getting beyond doubt is uh, one of the, the, the first three fetters. But also Lumpo would say things like, well, don't ask me whether I know, but ask yourself why you don't know. 
it always somehow ha- hand it back to you, and that, uh, and also being very aware of that sense of wanting authority. If you're going to say, you know, well done, lad, you know, or no, not quite yet, you know, a little bit further to go, or like, oh, you're totally wrong direction. So that sense of abdicating your own wisdom, your own intuition, to um, uh, to to say put that authority outside yourself, and so that then the 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 teacher or the authority figure or the the um, the thing that uh, has got the is the sort of reservoir of truth then says yes ding you know well done you've you've made it or no you haven't or, and then you uh, you go along with that um, and so that uh, <coughs> the uh, and that that's a, a very very common experience and and, uh, and not just with with stream entry but you know other different aspects of meditation so. Um, uh, many years years ago, and I was staying at a, one of the branch monasteries here in in England, and um, one of the uh, uh, one of the monks that was there made some sort of comment about, um, oh, I don't know, you know, my meditation is really pretty weak. I don't know anything about jhana. You know, it's there in the books, but uh, you know, I haven't I haven't really got any kind of experience of that. And the senior monk turned to him and said, "Are you out of your mind?" And he said. Yeah, you couldn't sit as still as you do if you hadn't reached at least first or second jhana. It'd be totally impossible. Yeah, of course, of course, you know what jhana is. And this sort of monk kind of looked at him like, really? <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I sit next to you all the time. You know, it's obvious. You know." And so that that the 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 younger monk had this sense of, well, of course, you know, I don't know anything about this. I don't have this experience, and had that particular judgment loop going. But the monk next to him was saying, "You know, this guy doesn't move a millimeter. You know, sitting there for a, you know an hour or so, and obviously this this person is really is really concentrated." And so that um, it was uh, an interesting dialogue. Like, oh, really? Then of course the younger monk, "Oh, wow!" <laughs> so then there's the challenge of grabbing hold of, "Hey, I've you know realized this jhana, and uh, you know I'm somebody special." So then that of course brings its own problems with it, and so that. When things go well, uh, uh, and again, Ajahn Chah would often make the point that uh, su- "quote unquote" success in meditation could be far more of a problem than having difficulties and obstacles. And, and sometimes, when things go go well, or people have uh, powerful meditation experiences, or, or have um, uh, say great, strong affirmations of their practice bearing fruit, that can be um, the worst thing that happens to them. <laughs> but uh, or that they can really get off track because of the, those kind of experiences. It's both by getting inflated or, or thinking, oh, well, I've really made it now, so I can just kind of kick back and, well, you know, it's all over, and it's just downhill from here on. I kind of sort of coast from here, you know, it's all just... And that that uh, is a dangerous belief. <laughs> So just a little bit more here. What is it that you can really trust within yourself at this moment? Don't try to find anything, but just see what that very question arouses. Thoughts come up, of course, and then feelings and reactions to them. But you can't trust those things. What about the awareness, this ongoing awareness? You can be aware that you're thinking. You can be aware that you're feeling. You can be aware of emotion. You can be aware of your body, of how it is. You can be aware through the sense, through the senses of things that are in this moment. Learning to trust this awareness, learning to put your faith in that awareness, I call taking the refuges. Quote, unquote. The refuges, then, are here rather than in some kind of abstract Buddha Dhamma Sangha or in some external thing. When you take the refuges, I encourage you to really see them. It need not be some Little ceremonies, just a sentimental thing we do at the summer school, it could actually have great value. It could be a reminder that your refuge is here in this awakenedness, in yourself, and to trust that, because the conditioning of the mind will tend to mistrust it. I think some people are just afraid of being enlightened in case they have to change their lifestyles or something. But it isn't a question of becoming somebody who is enlightened, quote unquote, is it? It doesn't make sense on that level. The point is to learn to trust in the awareness, the enlightened awareness. This awareness is light, actually. It is here and now. It's not created. It's not a mental image, a nimitta, a sign that you create out of imagination. It's real. 
something that you have with you wherever you go, whatever state of mind you're in. This then is the refuge. The safest place to be actually is in this refuge. Anyone? Yeah. Uh-huh.